Welcome to Health Equity Now. I'm your host, John Gorman. While the COVID-19 pandemic raced across the world and shook our healthcare institutions to their core, an even more insidious pandemic is ripping through our country behind the scenes. Prescription drug abuse surged during the stay-at-home orders, and with many communities experiencing double-digit increases in overdoses from opiates in a matter of months. Here in the D.C. capital area, in next door in the state of Maryland, we saw perfect evidence that this is no longer just a crisis restricted to rural white America. We saw opioid overdoses increase by over 90% in the Western Panhandle of Maryland, which is overwhelmingly white, and almost by the same number in Prince George's County, just outside of DC, which is overwhelmingly black. Mm -hmm. This crisis has affected everyone across the country in some form or another. And now national attention's recently been turned back to this crisis when the Sackler family, the owners of Purdue Pharma, the manufacturers of OxyContin, these are lawsuits that could end up rivaling the tobacco settlement in their significance and scope. They're now working their way through over half of U.S. states and substantial investments are being made and planned by the Biden administration. We are nowhere near finished combating this crisis. And I couldn't think of anyone better to address these issues than my guest today, Dr. Nzinga Harrison. Doctor, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you. So good to be here. Thank you. Thank you so much. So with nearly two decades of experience in the medical field, Dr. Harrison is a healthcare innovator who's devoted her entire career to treating vulnerable populations and re-engineering systems and institutions for more compassionate client care. She's a double board certified physician in addiction medicine and psychiatry. Oh my God, you are like a sister, <laughs> lost sister to my own mother. Uh, Dr. Harrison got her start working in outpatient psychiatric services in Georgia, where she provided care to veterans experiencing substance use disorders and homelessness. And today, Dr. Harrison is the co-founder and chief medical officer for Eleanor Health, one of the hottest new companies in the provision of comprehensive and outpatient addiction treatment. She is a nationally recognized advocate for stigma reduction with an emphasis on the necessity for whole person care as individuals and societies seeking to recover from and prevent substance abuse disorder. She's even got her own podcast <laughs> called In Recovery with Dr. Nzinga Harrison, which I'm a big fan of. Her team of docs specialize in treating individuals from marginalized communities with substance use and other physical disorders. And with clinics in seven states and many more on the way, Eleanor Health has risen to the forefront of addiction treatment and whole person care. And as a testament to the company's effectiveness, Eleanor literally just last week closed their Series B funding round for $20 million, including among other supporters, our very good friends at Town Hall Ventures. Congratulations, Dr. Harrison. Thank it's you. Pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you. I'm going to hire you to be my official introducer, like every time <laughs> I walk into a new room. <laughs> Let's get ready to rumble. Exactly. <laughs> well, we're just thrilled to have you on, Dr. Harrison, and we uh, at Nightingale are just delighted to be working with you and Eleanor on uh, several initiatives that I know we've got uh, we've got on the drawing board. Yeah, um, and please, please call me in Zinga. We're all friends here. Well, that's thank you for that. Um, having been raised by doctors, raised by wolves, I was always taught, call them doctor first. <laughs> until, until invited otherwise. Exactly. So thank invitation you. Invitation extended. So I know many of us by now saw the news about Eleanor closing its latest round. 
Uh, as someone who's advocated for comprehensive care for marginalized patients struggling with substance abuse disorders for years, I have to imagine this is an incredible milestone for you personally. It's, it is incredible. So like you said, I've really been taking care of people um, with the most severe illness for 20 years. So really serious substance use disorders, opioid, alcohol, benzoamphetamine, et cetera serious persistent mental illness, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, depression, trauma, really unstable social drivers of health. So housing insecurity, lack of meaningful connectedness, lack of support system, food insecurity. And so the, the current treatment system and fee-for-service reimbursement infrastructure just really does not allow you to take care of people in a way that helps this illness get better, right? So like, sure, I can prescribe Suboxone um, and there's a CPT code for that, but is there a CPT code for sitting with you and your family? Is there a CPT code for helping you get um, stable housing? Is there a CPT code for helping you find a place to volunteer or helping you figure out how to get to an AA meeting? There's not, or helping you navigate like our super crazy physical healthcare system. There's not. And so best meaning substance use disorder providers just have their hands tied because you can't spend the money to do things that you're not getting reimbursed for. And so we've, we've been successful at Eleanor in negotiating this different payment infrastructure that allows us to take care of people. Yeah. And well, for one, right in your answer, you see your whole background in advocacy because the question was about what a milestone this was for you personally, and you turned to the advocacy in a heartbeat. It's so a, it's a reflex. It's a you reflex. just can't take the advocate out of your doctor. <laughs> um, but no, absolutely, uh, fully appreciate that. And we all know that, especially in in the American system, providers follow the money, and mm-hmm. until the money is set up in a way to encourage both mental health and substance abuse mm-hmm. parity uh, in insurance coverage and in treatment, um, you know, we've got a, still a very long way to go. Yeah, um, absolutely. And I do, I want to push a little bit because providers follow the money sounds kind of cynical. Um, and, and sometimes it is, but I don't want to give this idea that like, in general, addiction professionals are just like trying to beat people over the head for money. It's like, they're literally out there struggling and you can't keep your business open if you do everything that needs to be done to help people get better. So it's really kind of a systemic issue to align that financial incentive with that human incentive um, that the system just hasn't had the appetite or wherewithal to do. Couldn't agree more. You know, as a kid who was raised by an ER doc who ran Mm -hmm. methadone clinics in her spare time in Detroit and the Boston area. Hey, mom, (laughs) here we are again. Um, (laughs) You know, we sort of came up in addiction medicine as as kind of part of our family business, really. Mm. And I really appreciate your comment about addiction service providers and clinicians that do this work because I have never seen a more selfless group mm-hmm. of professionals in my entire career than, mm-hmm. than I saw in addiction medicine uh, from my earliest days. So I, I really appreciate you making that, uh, making that point. Thank you. Um, in my time as a healthcare founder and as an active investor, it's really rare 
to see investments of this magnitude that Eleanor Health just got into addiction treatment services. And I look at that as a signal that the venture capital and the private equity communities are really looking to value-based care as the future in this country. And that value-based vendors like Eleanor um, are really going to be the breakthroughs that we've all been looking for, especially in this, uh, this sector of the healthcare economy. What is it about the Eleanor model that got this kind of attention and support from very big money people? Yeah, I think it's a few things. So one is um, we're built on the understanding that substance use disorders are chronic medical conditions. And so it's not a sore throat. You can't go to urgent care and get an antibiotic and be done with it, even though the concept is go to detox for five days or maybe go to rehab for 30 days and then you're cured, you're done. It's like, no, it's not a sore throat. It's not an ear infection. It's diabetes. Yeah. So how do we take care of diabetes? And I'm going to draw a series of parallels here. Um, Abstinence-based treatment for substance use disorders, you have to be, quote, ready to stop using. And if you don't stop using, you get kicked out of treatment. If we think about that in a chronic medical illness framework, that's the same as you have diabetes, your blood sugar is resistant to whatever treatment we're giving you right now. It would be crazy for you to say, and so I'm discontinuing your insulin and never going to see you again in my practice. Or you can't afford your insulin and therefore- you can't afford your insulin, so hit the road, Jack, right? Like that would be inconceivable. It's stigma and lack of understanding as substance use disorders, as chronic medical conditions that have let that be the persistent model in substance use disorder treatment. So when we go into payers or investors and say, look, because remember, we're aligning the financial incentive with the human incentive. We go to them and say, reconceptualize. It's not that this person doesn't want to stop using. It's that their illness is not controlled. How do we reduce the cost? How do we keep them out of the ED? How do we keep them out of very expensive $30,000 a month residential rehabs? How do we keep them off of the inpatient unit? Is by having that longitudinal relationship in the background that's constantly practicing harm reduction trying to help control those symptoms trying to at least bring it down like our outcomes are 80 percent reduction in emergency room visits and inpatient visits wow and so we can speak to a payer and say look at all the money you're saving and we can speak to an individual and say didn't it improve your quality of life not to be in the ER and inpatient unit. We saved eight out of 10 days, right? So you would have been in the ER or the inpatient unit for eight of those days. And we gave you those eight days back in your life. And so because we can, we're so data driven, we can quantify our outcomes. You look at our population, those that are in the fee for service model, because we have fee for service contracts. Sure compared to those in the value-based care model, fee-for-service payer spent more, had poorer outcomes. Now our outcomes are still better, like our care model. Nobody's languishing under our care, but the people who are getting the best outcomes for the least amount of money are the people who are in those value-based arrangements where we have enough resources to do what we need to do to take care of people. 
And that is really the, the hallmark of the, the Eleanor model that you've built. And it, it's, and, and you pursue these types of value-based contracts with almost all of your payers. Mm-hmm. But that pace places an enormous amount of risk on your shoulders. I mean, I really sincerely appreciate the point about addiction being a chronic condition and that we wouldn't throw um, an uncontrolled diabetic out onto the street with a donut, um, no less, like drop them off in front of the donut shop. Yeah, exactly. But especially knowing that when it comes to addiction, that recidivism really is the rule rather than the exception. Ooh, How- I'm going to push back. I don't even want you to finish that question before I push back. Okay. Okay. Because if we look at relapse rates for diabetes, yeah, relapse rates for hypertension, relapse rates for asthma with relapse being defined as a recurrence of symptoms after a period of time where symptoms were gone. That's the medical definition. The relapse rate for addiction is exactly the same. You're kidding. It's 45 to 55% per year. So this is stigma. This is our belief that treatment for substance use disorders doesn't work and relapse is the rule. If relapse is the rule for substance use disorders, it's the same rule for diabetes, asthma, hypertension. That's astounding. And thank you for for clarifying that for me, because here I was thinking that, you know, it was far higher a rate of of relapse with having been an addict myself. I mean, I haven't touched a cigarette in eight years. Congratulations. Took me eight attempts to quit. It was, and my, every time I tried, it was like coming off of what must've been like kicking a serious cocaine habit. Yeah. Um, it was absolutely brutal. And, um, but I finally have gotten in and I've, and I've stayed, and I haven't touched a cigarette since, but having had that experience, of course, I assumed having failed eight times that the rate was much higher. Thank you for clarifying that. Yeah, well, and and you didn't fail eight times, right? Your attempts to quit failed eight times, but you'll see that I'm super militant about this language because if we were talking about diabetes, think about over, did you say eight years? Yeah. Over eight years, how many people with diabetes have had a perfectly controlled blood sugar for that entire eight years? We wouldn't even set that as a goal, right? You can never, ever have a blood sugar reading outside of goal. Right. We wouldn't even set that. Right. Exactly. Well, so how do you manage that risk? I mean, still the the number you cited, it's not nothing. That's a significant number. And yet you're taking risk on these populations. So how do you manage that? Yeah. So part of the reason why in diabetes, hypertension, asthma, and substance use disorders that that annual relapse rate is so high is because our systems are not adequately taking care of people. And so it would be the same concept. Um, The abstinence-based treatment mindset is that you can't use any medications and you have to be completely and utterly free or you're not ready for recovery. Right. The same thing in diabetes would be, I can never prescribe insulin or glucophage and I want to try to control and you just have to keep your blood sugar in order. Like doesn't make sense. So that drives relapse risk. It would be the same thing in diabetes as 
I'm not going to teach you healthy eating and nutrition and exercise. On the substance use disorder side, that's your OBOT clinic that's only prescribing Suboxone and not wrapping around the rest of the psychosocial interventions. On the diabetes side, it would be a lack of understanding that stress and life are driving relapse risk for diabetes. The same is true, but there's no fee for service code. So I actually can't spend time addressing the social drivers of health and that are driving your diabetes. Like you live in a food desert and there's no fresh produce at your grocery store, or you have financial constraints and a head of kale costs $3 (laughs) and a can of greens costs 99 cents. Right. Right. And so I use that diabetes metaphor because the reason we're able to take risk at Eleanor Health is because our model can wrap around the comorbid depression, anxiety, trauma, et cetera. We can manage that. If you can't manage that, of course, relapse is coming. We can help you with those social drivers of health. If you can't help with those, of course, relapse is coming. We can help with your physical, your chronic pain syndrome that I can say, don't use opioids and sorry, your chronic pain is uncontrolled. Right. Of course that's driving relapse. So when you can do this whole person approach that actually approaches other mental health conditions, the substance use disorder, the life conditions, meaningful connectedness and the physical health conditions, you get the kind of outcomes that we're getting at Eleanor Health, even though we're not making people commit to this crazy idea of complete abstinence or right. else. Right. Yes, a great portion of our community member population, their goal is complete abstinence. We're there. Got it. That's working goal, that with you. But it's it's not the path, right? It's <laughs> the works. path is keep yeah. the path is keep coming back because the yeah. person with diabetes goal is complete control of blood sugar, but then they went on a cruise and they <laughs> left their accidentally left their medication at home and it was unlimited food and drinks. And they came off of the cruise and their blood sugar was haywire. What a great point. Right? Life. Let me, ask, let me ask you two things. In recognizing now that you slapped me right in the head with it, um, <laughs> that relapse rates among all these chronic conditions are virtually identical. How much do you attribute relapse to poverty? Is that the oh, underlying thread among all of those relapse rates? One, 100%. And so the other thing I'm going to give you, not only is the relapse rate basically equivalent across those, the genetic contribution of risk, actually like addiction has a higher genetic contribution, a higher, your amount of risk for developing addiction is more genetic than with type two diabetes, than with essential hypertension, than with asthma. And that genetic risk is compounded by poverty. So if you just look at health period, yes, absolutely 100%. Poverty, racism, discrimination, oppression, early childhood, um, adverse childhood experiences and trauma, ACEs. Feeds all of the chronic mental, mental and physical health conditions that we have. It feeds every single one of them. Wow, jeez, <laughs> it's amazing how much we 
add to our already poor state of health in this country just by not addressing poverty and racism. Totally. 100%. We'd save this country trillions of dollars. So much money if we would just come in the front door, right? If we just come. So it's so funny. One of our peers at Eleanor, I am happy to be back on the road, um, fully vaccinated. So finally got back to our North Carolina clinic for the first time in like a year, one of our clinics. And one of our peers said, you know what I want to start? A financial literacy group. What a great idea. How to manage your money. Now that you're going to have it, now that you've gotten your, your, your addiction under control. And does this make the most sense in the entire world? Yeah. Yeah. That's a this makes the world. most sense in the entire world. And that's how we reduce risk. What do you make of, you, you mentioned your disdain, which I share for abstinence only programs, which have always just struck me as completely and utterly unrealistic. And that so many of them are wrapped up in organized religion that basically says, you got to eat this in order to come sit with us. What did you make of this class action lawsuit against the Salvation Army for not having anything but an abstinence program? I was glad to see it. Um, and the Salvation Army has been such a wonderful resource for so many people that I've taken care of over the last decade and a half. But my my stance on this is that there are an infinite number of pathways to addiction. And so there have to be an infinite number of pathways to recovery. And if we look in the evidence base, like the I don't know, just show me, show me a religious based diabetes program that doesn't allow you to have insulin, like just show it to me. Right. (laughs) And so um, it is not to say that Suboxone doesn't have addictive risk because it does. That's also not to say that the sleeping medication that many people took last night don't have addictive risk because it does. It doesn't have the same stigma around it. Um, But if you really are trying to help the most number of people stay alive from opioid use disorders, you have to be able to consider, like that would be the same as if we said at Eleanor Health, we don't help anybody whose whose goal is abstinence-based only. That would be equally as egregious, right? Um, So I was glad to see it because Salvation Army could be helping so many more people. Like the rest of their program is just so beautiful and so helpful and so effective that you're turning away people you could be helping based on an outdated, non-evidence-based, non-medically supported position for medical illness. Yeah. Thank you for that. Um, I Yeah, I'd always thought that the more flexible these types of programs can be, the more success they'll have. I mean, I did my honors thesis in school on the economics of the drug war mm-hmm. and concluded that, you know, like anybody who knows this literature does, that you can only win a drug war, which is itself a stupid term, but you can only win over addictive drugs by dealing with the demand side of the equation and not the supply side. That's right. And that we as a country failed, um, especially in the 80s, by taking a law enforcement and interdiction approach Mm -hmm. to drug abuse instead of looking at it as a public health matter. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You mentioned 
you just got to visit your North Carolina clinic for the first time in a year. Now that we're both vaxxed and relaxed, um, and relaxed. what are you seeing in the communities that you've intervened with, yeah, especially in the data as we come out the back end of, of this pandemic, what have you seen changes and what are the trends that you've seen in the communities where Eleanor has its, its, its physical presence? Yeah, definitely. So I'll talk um, very generally the trends you started at the top of the show with the, the pandemic has been excruciatingly hard on people. Stress and disconnection drives illness, period, no matter what that illness is. Uh, we've seen an increase in, so I can talk about our population. We're very data driven. Everybody that joins Eleanor's community gets anxiety scale at baseline and ongoing regular interval, gets depression scores at baseline, ongoing regular interval, gets what we call a recovery capital scale, um, which quantifies those needs in the social drivers of health in 35 different domains, gets substance craving scales, gets urine drug screens. So we have a, a really good um, 360 degree view of our population that's in our community from a data perspective. What we found throughout the pandemic, anxiety scores went up, depression scores went up, craving scores went up. No doubt. We did not see an increase in our relapse rates. Really? The reason we did not see an increase in our relapse rates is because we did see a 44% increase in the number of touch points for our people. And so this goes back to the importance of having people already connected. Uh, we saw a 156% increase in demand for new, new members wow. joining the community. Wow. So while our existing members already had us and we're like, okay, we're only seeing you once a week. Now on average, we're seeing you 1.44 times per week over the population. Like that's a dramatic increase yeah. in services. What we did see was the top of the funnel is just like filling almost faster than we can even grow our resources. Um, because one, people stress is off the charts. So relapse is going off the charts. Drug use is going off the charts, alcohol, cigarettes. Two, the pandemic really lowered the stigma bar for saying I need help. Isn't that that is one of the beautiful things yeah. that came out of the pandemic. Like all of us were struggling so much that everybody everywhere was all over social media. Like I'm depressed. I'm anxious. I'm drinking too much. I had been cutting back on this Xanax and now it's going up. It was like, okay to say I need help. And so people are, um, are coming in. Wow. That said, even though we take care of people during all phases of substance use disorder, including during active use, 70% over the pandemic, 70% of people in Eleanor Health's community saw a reduction in their depression. That's just after, after joining, after joining. So we really saw this pandemic peak and coming back down because we were able to increase those services. 70% have seen a reduction in anxiety, um, seven, 80% actually have seen an improvement, 84 to be exact in substance use. Wow. Um, over 70% have had an improvement in their social drivers of health. Wow. Now where we do see differences, people always ask me like, is it different in the Medicaid population? Is it different in the commercial population? Is it different in the Medicare population? Because we serve all 
um, we see higher people dropping out of the community when they have a high deductible health plan. <laughs> they can't that's, afford that's to come right. see us. Yeah, it's an economic barrier. Yep. We see um, Black people dropping out at a higher rate. We're just trying to figure out why that would be the case. We think we're wrapping around people in the same way. What that's telling us is that somehow we need to wrap around our Black folks in a different way that helps keep them with us. They get the depression improvement, the anxiety improvement, not the craving improvement hmm. and slower to improve on a social drivers of health. So there's a definite race component there that we're trying to figure out. Well, it's not surprising considering nope. that very often stigma around substance abuse is even higher in the African-American community. Yeah. And, you know, the, just the, the sort of discouraging of even acknowledging that one has a problem. Much less well, I'm going to drop another stat on you. I'm going to drop another stat on you. Hit me. <laughs> Which is that actually, um, statistically speaking, a Black person with substance use disorder is more likely to seek treatment than a non-Black person. But there are more barriers to accessing that treatment. So even though they're more likely to seek treatment, sure. they're less likely to enter. Sure. And yeah, with less access to it, transportation becomes obviously a much bigger issue. You've got economic barriers like a co-payment or a deductible. But well, that's uh, that's another amazing statistic. Thank you for that. Um, wow. So from what we've seen in the work that, that we do in Zynga and the investments that we make and, and the work that we'll be doing with Eleanor, you know, we see the real difficulties of comprehensive care, mm -hmm. especially for behavioral health, is having everything you need on hand. Yeah. In your perfect world, what are some benefits and services that Eleanor would like to provide to its patients in the future, given the needs that you're seeing daily? You've touched on some of them already, but how would those be structured as benefits or services within the Eleanor framework to have maximum effect? Yeah, I think our concept on this is um, finding like-minded value-based partners that fill out a continuum in a community, right? So the healthiest individuals live in a community that has a continuum that can address mental health needs, substance use disorder needs, physical health needs, life meaning and purpose and is a compassionate community and has resources for those needs in the realm of social drivers of health. So I don't think that it's necessarily that we want to be providing all of that so much as we need to have institutional relationships and partnerships that our community members can benefit from. So for example, if there's a Salvation Army in the community that will let people on Suboxone and other medications for substance use disorders come, we wanna have such a tight relationship with them that we know we help our community member get to you because they're gonna be emotionally safe when they get there. They're yep. gonna get you know, medically safe support. They're gonna be able to access the resources and the expertise that you have. And so 
I would say looking at our community's needs, like always looking for primary care doctors, that is a capability that probably strategically at some point will either develop a deep partnership so deep that it's white labeled Eleanor Health or just have that capability ourselves. Mm -hmm. um, chronic pain is a huge comorbidity for our people. No doubt. Housing instability. Um, financial instability, but then also I just, I cannot overemphasize enough connectedness, life meaning and purpose. Yeah. So like, that's what we're looking to help connect our people to in their communities is like, what, like you can tell, you asked me that first question, you were like, this must be a huge, I don't know what the question was. This must be a huge um, accomplishment. You kind of languished it for Nzinga as an individual. But what motivates me is like this sense of community and change and being part of something bigger. And so we have we talk to each one of our community members like what brings a sense of purpose to you? How do we help you find that and get connected to that in your community? Because a sense of purpose and connectedness drives health, period, certainly drives the ability to more successfully keep a substance use disorder in remission. Of the folks that you're working with, what proportion are you seeing housing insecurity as an issue out of curiosity? Well, let me not just answer this off the top of my head, but instead I will pull up our social drivers of health dashboard. There you go. And give you a real answer on this. I love this kind of nerd porn in Zynga. Thank you. <laughs> just, just, just keep serving it up. I love it. So, I mean, but that's, that is our like culture at Eleanor Health, yeah. right? Like we're not just trying to say we're better at this. Like we're actually collecting the data that says this is the difference that we were yeah. able to make on this. So, okay, I'm looking. So um, this is a cumulative number since September of 2019. Any person who's been in the Eleanor community for one month or longer 77% of them have had an improvement in their recovery capital. And I'm gonna break this down so that I can look specifically at um, an improvement in housing. Yeah, housing insecurity. So I have a number in mind and I'm willing to bet I'm way off. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, what's your number that you have in mind? I, I, I hate to say I'm a betting person, but I'm a betting person. I'm a gambler, uh, but I'm guessing. Okay, hold on. I'm going to tell you. Well, should you tell me your number first? You're going to do what you've done the rest of this interview, and you're going to tell me where I'm wrong. <laughs> I can only tell you about what's, what's happening at Eleanor. At I'm going to take a Health. silly, wild-ass guess that it's about 55%. Okay. And uh, the number then, safe home, well, our population, 94% of our population have had an improvement in the safety of their home, which includes housing security. Um, looking at the baseline on that, what percent came in with a score less than three is what I'm looking for, because this recovery capital, here we go. Safe home delta. I think you're, so many Americans. You're, you're not far. It's right at about 70% who are coming to housing insecurity. You're not That's far. That's not surprising at all. I mean, and that will definitely vary. I won't do it in real time because we're on tape, but I can break that down by 
type of insurance, mm. I would expect that would be higher in Medicaid, lower in commercial. Um, I'm not sure what it would look like for Medicare. I would imagine it's right around what the Medicaid number is because those are folks on fixed incomes. Yeah, exactly. Right? Exactly. Um, that's fascinating and not surprising. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when we think about, you know, one of the things that's our touch point at Nightingale is, is Maslow's hierarchy, right? That's and then right. if you're not meeting basic human needs, like food, shelter, security. That is exactly right. You can't have any reasonable expectation that somebody's going to be an active participant in improving their own health conditions, especially chronic conditions. That is exactly right. They don't know where their next bed or their next meal is coming from. Yep. So one of the things I get really excited about in this burgeoning partnership with Eleanor is that we will be able to provide the external capital to do this wraparound supportive and transitional housing mm -hmm. for those 70% that struggle with housing insecurity. Uh, food security, I got to imagine is the same. I mean, it's, you know, you never want people in addiction treatment making choices between food and medicine. Mm -hmm. right? That's right. And that's exactly what happens. I read this. You said you did your um, thesis on health economy subject. I read this brilliant, and I'll have to pull it out and send it to you, um, report on the difference that changing the medication copay makes. Just changing it yeah. by $10. Oh, and it basically showed that like, or I don't, I'm not even sure if it was the medication copay or if it was the appointment copay. I think it was the appointment copay because I was specifically following this data point that we have that people with high deductible health plans are falling out. So we're like trying to use that to inform our negotiations um, with future payer partners. But it was like just a $10 increase and it is all or nothing. They don't just yeah. stop filling one medication. They stop filling all the medications. They don't just stop going to that doctor. They stop going to all the doctors because they're having to make this choice. And so it quantified like mortality, morbidity and cost trade-offs for that $10. It was fascinating. You know, a lot of us that are professionals don't think a whole lot about a $10 copay, but to somebody who's making $1,000 a month, that's right. it's a very big deal. That's and right. this has really been kind of a soapbox thing for me for years. I literally, just before I got on the phone with you, was, was on the phone with, with AHIP. And we were talking about their whole social determinant agenda. And mm -hmm. I was like, listen, that's got to start with co-payments and deductibles. Mm -hmm. Those are the biggest barriers to access for every kind of critical service that we need. And they're just purely economic roadblocks yep. to lower income and vulnerable people to getting those kinds of services. It's yep. a yep. great point. Um, I'm sure many of our listeners out there have friends and family members that are struggling with addiction, looking for answers, especially in the tail end of this, this horrible pandemic and all these lockdowns. Could you share just a little brief advice or experience with them about, you know, just the, the run of the mill folks who are struggling with, with either their own or a family member's substance problems and, uh, and what are the first steps to take? Yeah, so I think the first step is, I mean, it sounds cliche, but it's the first step for real is like understanding if you actually have a problem. And so um, we have this concept of 
substance misuse or addiction or substance use disorder that's really severe, but it's a spectrum, mild, moderate, severe. It's at risk, mild, moderate, and severe. And so you really want to catch people in the at-risk phase if you can. So for people who are listening, um, just go to Eleanor. Actually, just Google Eleanor Health, do I have a problem? And it'll pull up a screener for you, which is the Cage Aid. It's psychometrically validated screener that we use in medicine. And it has four variables. And it's C, have you ever felt you needed to cut back? A, have you ever been annoyed, annoyed when somebody else talked to you about your use of whatever substance that is? G, have you ever felt guilty when you were using it? And E, have you ever needed to use it first thing in the morning, like to get your day going? E is for eye opener. So you open your eyes and you need to use it. Mm -hmm. One yes out of those four questions is accurate 77% of the time. that you meet diagnostic criteria for a substance use disorder. And it may be mild, moderate, or severe. This is very important because if it's mild, this isn't a wonderful opportunity to intervene. So even if you're just like, man, I'm struggling. I'm a little bit worried about my alcohol intake. I've been trying to cut back on cigarettes. It's going up instead. I've noticed that I'm taking more of the sleeping medication because I can't sleep at night. Like if you have any question at all, Just Google Eleanor Health, do I have a problem? Take that screener. And if you answer yes to one, talk to somebody about it. Talk to your primary care doctor, talk to a friend, talk to your religious leader, talk to your therapist if you have one. Eleanor Health has free support groups for anybody, no money, no commitment, just learning, like drop into one of our free support groups, like do something because there's 77% chance you're at least falling in mild. And if you're falling in mild, we want to prevent moderate. And if you're falling in moderate, we want to prevent severe. And if you're falling in severe, we want to prevent death. Right. So just let that one. Yes. Bring down the, the, the barrier enough to take the risk to ask for help from somewhere, from somebody somehow. Yeah. Thank you for that. That's really wonderful advice. Um, I want to just leave you with, with a question that, um, you know, I think certainly in this pandemic, everybody's been drinking more. Everybody's been drinking more. Yes. I'm certain. Literally. Yeah. Um, I think alcohol manufacturers were among the few that really saw a huge uptick, even with shutdowns going on. Well, but, and this is our culture. They were deemed essential. Yeah. Schools yeah. closed, but liquor stores Yeah, but happen. liquor stores stayed open, yep. Um, Got to keep the, the fuzz on folks when they're, you're locking them indoors. How is alcohol addiction fundamentally different than almost every other form of substance abuse? It's not. Physiologically and, and otherwise. It's not. It's not? So physiologically, it's fundamentally the same. Now, there's a different set of receptors. So opioid addiction is hitting your opioid receptors and cigarette addiction is hitting your nicotinic receptors. And um, benzodiazepine is actually hitting the same receptor. So Xanax, Clonopin, Ativan is all hitting the same receptor as alcohol, which is GABA. But where they all come together is the dopamine pathway, which the dopamine pathway is our survival mechanism. And the natural determinants of dopamine are food, water, sex, nurturing. Mm. 
and tells us you need this to survive. Yeah. And so that is part of your um, deep brain system, which is reflexive. And it feeds forward to your prefrontal cortex, like your, your, your higher thinking brain system where voluntary behavior and all of this comes in. And it basically sends the message, if you don't do this, you will not survive as a human, nor will the human species survive. So that makes sense, right? Like if you don't eat, yeah. if you don't drink water, if you don't have sex, if you don't nurturing, you will die. Like this is true. Yeah. And so the problem with alcohol, amphetamine, opioids, benzos, cigarettes, all of the things that we get addicted to is that they develop a super biological size dopamine signal. Hmm. And to your brain, the bigger the signal and the longer it lasts, that's the most important thing. So alcohol binds to your GABA receptors, lots of things happen, but it develops a dopamine signal that's bigger than food, water, sex, nurturing. Cocaine develops a dopamine signal that's bigger than food, water, sex, nurturing. Yeah. Opioids develop a dopamine signal that's bigger than food, water, sex, nurturing. So fundamentally, alcohol biologically is not different. It's a receptor, you get a dopamine pathway. Culturally, alcohol is different because we literally start programming people from the womb about the importance of alcohol in our lives. And you can't say to somebody, like you can say, I stopped smoking and everybody would be like, hey, you can't be at the bar after work as an attorney and say, I'm not having a drink because I have alcoholism. People are like, ooh, what's wrong with you, <laughs> yeah. right? Right. But so in, that's really how it's different is social, culturally, not biologically. And not even in the withdrawal or as your, your body weans itself off of it. Sure. So, I mean, you experienced nicotine withdrawal. Oh, my God. I was a monster. Yeah. So that biological phenomenon, like the receptor makes it different. Yes. But the concept is the same. You use it regularly. Your body physiology matches itself to your level of use. That level of use goes away. You get withdrawal symptoms because physiologically that has, your body has to reset itself. So the actual symptoms for alcohol withdrawal are different from the actual symptoms of opioid withdrawal are different from the actual symptoms of nicotine withdrawal are different from the actual symptoms of amphetamine withdrawal. But biologically it's the same mechanisms. It's receptor is tolerance. You used more and more and more. Your body got used to that. It's withdrawal when it disappeared. It's the yeah. same loop. That's very helpful. Thank you so much for that. Um, are there any resources you refer our listeners to aside from the the one on the Eleanor Health website? I, I EleanorHealth.com. We yeah. have so much education and content on there. So definitely check it out. Definitely check out our, our support groups. Um, the podcast. In yeah, recovery. I want to drive people to your podcast too. Yeah, definitely. Just Google In Recovery with Dr. Nzinga Harrison. You can listen anywhere you get your podcast, but it is really that last question that you asked me. Like, what's fundamentally different about people who are addicted to things? The answer is nothing. We are all fundamental. Every single one of us is doing something that we would stop doing if it was as easy as just stop doing it. Yeah. Every single one of us is, right? Um, and so that's the premise. Compassion and evidence is the premise of the podcast. So lots of good uh, information there. 
The last resource I always give people, and I don't have any formal connection. I just love the impact that this company is making is wethevillage.co, not com, .co, C-O, wethevillage.co, which is an evidence-based support community for people who are loved ones of someone struggling. Mm. It is support for you. And they use this method that teaches compassion, empathy, boundary setting, um, and their data, like 60 plus percent. It's not the person with the addiction that goes through the program. It's the support system. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 60% of the people with addiction enter treatment and stay in treatment longer when their loved one has gone through this program. It's wethevillage.co. Wow, that's a wonderful suggestion. Thanks. I'll, I'm going to check that out myself. Check it out. It's amazing. And Zynga, you're amazing. Thank you so much for, I, I got to say, of all of these types of discussions I've done in my career, this one was certainly the most illuminating. And I have never had a guest make me sweat like this. Oh, my God. This was really just an amazing discussion. And I learned so much about this, about a topic I thought I knew a fair amount about. So Thank you so much for all your lessons, your wisdom, and your grace, and this amazing success that your wonderful company's having. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us on and look forward to uh, our game. Thanks so much again. We'll see you soon.